Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, and this is the ACR 2019 podcast. We're coming to you from the annual meeting in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode is a collection of our faculty reports, interviews, and panel discussions recorded live from the Room Now booth. I hope you enjoy and learn. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you from Atlanta for ACR 2019 and I am presenting the first ever X Factor with some of my closest friends. So our hashtag for this is going to be ACR Unfiltered because this is a, a really great group of women who have some really interesting perspectives on some fun and very important topics. So I'm going to let you guys introduce yourselves and tell us something fun. So my name is Kanika Manga and I am actually a second year fellow at UT Houston. Uh, something fun about me is I like to uh, dance, specifically Bollywood music, uh, in my free time. Um, I'm Courtney Crane. I'm a pediatric rheumatologist from Alabama and I am the proud mama to two baby boys ages five and two. My name is Aruni Jayatilika. I am a rheumatologist at Temple in Philadelphia. And I actually participated in a drumline that opened a conference in Philadelphia. It was on a much smaller scale. Awesome. <laughs> Catherine Dell. Um, I'm from Dallas at UT Southwestern. And many of you know me as Jack Cush's partner, the nicer one. <laughs> Anyways, things that you may not know about me is that when Jack first started Room Now, I mean, like all great things, it started on a paper napkin. And we have one more guest, Rachel. I want to bring into this women in rheumatology panel. Come on in. This is our best female advocate, uh -huh. Dr. Ruderman. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Eric Ruderman. Who needs no introduction? Eric Ruderman from Chicago. Tell Thanks us something for inviting fun. me in. <laughs> Tell me something fun. Yeah. I, I, I have a menagerie at home. My my youngest daughter is an animal lover, so we have cats, chickens, rabbits, uh, dogs, you name it. Um, and I I'm in charge of all animal cleanup at the house. Oh wow, that's a big job. Well, we're a little bit of a menagerie, I think, ourselves. So, you guys, I just want your perspective on what have been your experiences for being a female rheumatologist or mentoring female rheumatologists. So, for me, um, just to give you a little bit of my background. So, I graduated medical school 20 years ago, and I, you know, I've been so lucky to have such good mentors in my life. I mean, and a lot of the mentors, I mean, they didn't even realize they were my mentors. It's people in medicine as well as people outside of medicine. And I would say Jack Cush is probably one of my biggest mentors. Um, and when people ask me, why did I choose rheumatology? I actually say, it's not me choosing rheumatology, it's rheumatology who chose me. And it was actually Dr. Wayne Yokoyama who had um, actually had the idea that I should be a rheumatologist. And at that point I was thinking about being a GI doctor. So, so I just want to give you a little perspective there. So, you know, there's a lot of different things that um, went, being a woman, that you encounter. Some of that is what um, many of us have actually experienced is the imposter syndrome. And you can talk a little bit more about that. And, you know, she presented like um, this beautiful um, research study with regards to women in rheumatology. Yeah. Thank you Thanks, so Dr. much Manga. for that. Thank you. Yes. Um, I'm honored and so excited to be able to talk about our research uh, nationally at conferences after a really huge study they actually showed the overall proportion of women to male speakers was actually only 34 percent women and so Dr. Liu and I decided to look at 
what that percentage was at our ACR annual meeting. So what we actually found is overall we're doing significantly better, especially than surgical and even other um, medical specialties, which is great. Uh, so our average was about 45% of the overall proportion were women. Uh, so that's amazing. And actually from 2017 to 2018, we've actually increased by 4%. And I'm proud to say that in 2019, we're now at 49.1%. Uh, so it would be really naive of me not to mention that I know for this to happen, it took the effort of amazing men and women and the American College of Rheumatology making it an active and conscious part of our mission uh, to promote equal representation. So I'm so fortunate to be in our field and to be surrounded by all of you guys. So thank you. Well, speaking about kind of the transition with everything, Dr. Crane was talking to us about her experiences with balancing work and life. And I think you have a really great perspective. Would you mind sharing that with us? Yes, so I had both of my, my sons during medical training. So the first one during my intern year of residency, um, where my husband and I were separated geographically, so I was raising a son mostly as a single mom. And then I had my, my second son during fellowship, and I had a very different experience. So fellowship allowed me the opportunity to have more flexibility because of the research schedule and the less clinic time and then the, the no inpatient call. And so I think rheumatology has a great potential for a work-life balance if you have supportive mentors and supportive division who understands that you don't always have to be at the office because the schools are closed, you know, kids get sick, they can't go back to school for two days. And so if you have the opportunity to kind of cater your schedule with the advent of the medical record, the electronic medical record is a mom's best friend. Yeah. Like, and same with like the online journals, like you can do a lot of your stuff after the kids get tucked away to bed and so you don't necessarily have to physically be at the hospital all the time like you did during residency. So. Well, I think that's a unique perspective, the electronic medical record actually being a tool that we can use for our day-to-day -day life to survive. What are your thoughts on that? On the electronic medical record? I or in life balance. <laughs> that is an excellent question. So I also have two children and uh, my first child was born at the end of my fellowship and it was not something that I really understood how it would impact my professional life. Um, and I had maybe six weeks uh, at the end of the fellowship and I had to start my job as an attending two weeks uh, later, and so I had a total of eight weeks off, uh, which didn't seem like a big deal to me before I had a child. And then it ended up that, you know, it was quite a big deal. Um, and thankfully, with some better maternity leave policies at my institution, my second child was a bit easier as I had uh, during my career. Well, one of the things that I think is so important as a mom is that you didn't introduce the factor of breastfeeding. Oh my God, I used that word. Yes, what? and lactation. What? Yes. How did you handle this? <laughs> no, but it, but it is. I mean, we've we struggled. It's a big issue in clinic, right? It's like if you're having a clinic and okay, you're going to carve out some time. Even if the baby's not there, you're pumping, right? And what do you do? And you carve out the time, but then where do you go? A lot of hospitals don't have places to go, and they're like, "Well, use the bathroom." No, right? So, so we we would actually close some of the clinic exam rooms for for some of our docs as they've come through, 
because you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, so I'm actually in a pediatric hospital that's very breast friend, breastfeeding friendly, and there's still no good place to go to go pump. But the, that's the you kind of hit the the nail on the head. I think to be successful as a parent, whether you're female or male, yeah. you have to have a schedule. There has to be structure, and so like you have to pre-plan. And I think that's the like the, the that like that's the way to be successful as a parent and be a physician. So. Isolating um, breastfeeding and pumping, you know, that first year, and instead of being able to interact with my colleagues during lunchtime, I had to go back to my office, which was in a different location, and pump. And uh, it was it was difficult. Um, and I don't think I think that gave me a new perspective for my fellows um, when they came through training and had children, and, and I understood their needs Absolutely. and encouraged them to do the same thing. Well, and. Give us a little bit more about the male perspective. I know that you said, Dr. Ruderman, it's a little bit of a challenge to create an environment that supports everybody. Um, what have you guys done at Northwestern, or what have you seen? You know, the, fir the first part is recognition, and recognizing that it's not like, well, we don't treat you any differently, but sometimes you kind of have to do, because outside of work, it's different. And the, the mom thing is, it's changing, but it's always like if something, if there's a problem, the kid's home from school, from, from school sick, it's mom's job, right? Um, way better than it used to be because at least, hopefully most of the dads now are better partners, but society still expects that. And I think it's hard, so we have to, we work around that and we try to make sure that, listen, if you got a childcare problem or whatever, I mean, you're gone. I, I, I remember, and you know, and, and the key for that is not even at work, it's to, is to have a partner you can work with on that and make sure that they're all in. But I still remember when I started 25 years ago, my practice, my, our nanny left and our daughter was home from school sick and I had to cancel my patients for a whole day. And my senior partner guy looked at me and he said, well, I don't understand why that's your problem. And that's changing, but it's still a challenge. It's prevalent. We feel guilty. Yeah. You know? We do. We do. Mom guilt factor because know, we're supposed to be there. To, right, you shouldn't be forced to do that. But also, sorry, but also it's uh, so whenever you're asked to do something, for example, I was asked as a third year fellow, like in the second half of my third year fellowship, to write a case report, and I politely declined it seven times because it's not career enhancing at that point, and I offered it to a medical student. Um, it was perceived as I can't write the case report because of my kids. And so you get this negative perception. So you're not allowed, it's almost like you're not allowed to say no. You're not allowed to miss a day because it's always because of the kids. And that's not necessarily what, what the message so is. So we have to be the ones to shift the paradigm and to support each other. And I mean, I have amazing mentors. Like this is one of them, Dr. <laughs> Catherine Dow. Dr. Ruderman is actually another one of them as well. And I've been really fortunate, but I, like most women, also put my fertility in a little bit of a bind based on wanting to have a family later in life. And I think it just goes to show that we have struggles that we aren't expecting. And I think my personal goal is to advocate for each of us. I mean, regardless of if you're male or female, we need to support each other. There, We have a loss of how many people we have in the workforce. And however you make your work schedule work, you're more productive if you have that scheduling ability. So any final thoughts, you guys? We could talk about this forever. I mean, I literally, I, we, we've been off camera for a while. We've been waiting on some other groups to be done. And I think you guys have a wonderful perspective and sharing it's important. 
Can I make a comment on your paper? Because it was fascinating, and I think that's that it's great news, but it's not enough, right? So even at 49%, you know, there we have way more women fellows now than men, so that's not even the percentage of rheumatologists. And then you dig deeper and you, well, how many of those were moderators? How many of those gave important invited lectures? That's the next step. It's not just showing up. It's we need to make sure that women get to the top exactly. of what we're doing. Yeah, How do you so do that? Thank, actually, thank you for bringing that up because one of the big things we looked at was clinical versus basic sciences. Even though the overall proportion uh, was now 49.1%, as of 2017 and 2018, we do have a discrepancy of about 5% even between clinical versus basic sciences. Wow. So that is something we do need to work on. Uh, the ACR's work task force actually had predicted by 2020 there would be our field in adult rheumatology would consist of 57% women versus men. So our goal should not be 50%. It should be more reflective of the active workforce, which is what you were getting at. How about we go around the table, Rachel, and then every one of us gives a little bit of advice to especially the female trainees. To me. <laughs> Yeah, we love you. And, you know, you, you also need us to give us the medical students advice and really people, important. you know, who are younger than us and who may not have as good of an experience. What, what exactly would you, what one piece of information would you distill to help others? I would say the most important thing that my mentors and sponsors have taught me is if you want to do something and you believe in it, uh, don't let imposter syndrome take over. Be your own advocate, you know, be proud of what you want to achieve, what you want to accomplish, and don't be afraid to reach out to people. In fact, I've realized, even at meetings like ACR, I've reached out to people that I've, I hadn't really met in real life yet. I'd, you know, been inspired by on Twitter or social media, and I've reached out to them and said, hey, can we meet? And they've been more than excited to meet and give me advice. And I think that's actually really helped me uh, in developing my skills. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of piggyback on that. I think uh, I think you have a lot of choices about life, whether what career path you choose, whether it's research or clinical, private practice, academics, planning a family, getting married, um, or traveling. Um, and I think whatever path you choose, just make sure you're confident that that's what you want, that's your passion, that's your desire, that is your choice, and to own it, to own your character, own your, your choices. I mean, I couldn't have said that better myself. I would say my one pearl for everyone is to find mentors who are supportive and who um, encourage you and challenge you to be better, and you're never going to fall flat on your face. You have a support team. That's what I believe rheumatology is. Agreed. And as somebody who tries to be a mentor and a program director, um, I try to not assume that I know what my female or male fellows want or when they plan to have families or if they plan to have families during their training and instead to ask them what their goals are and not assume that their family life goals are necessarily in conflict yeah. uh, with their professional goals and it's, so I try to support them that way. So for me is the only person you have to impress and you have to think about this is actually your kids because more is caught than taught so if yes. you're going to be pushing them aside they're not going to treat other people that well. And if you don't put family as a priority, they're not going to put family as a priority. They'll be like, bye mom. You know, so to me, I think that when I have my family as the center of my life here um, and everybody else kind of falls into place, it works out. 
it's always tough to be the end of the line when you have to say oh. something. No, it's something new. But but I actually I want to follow a mentor story because find mentors who will advocate for you. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. really critical. So not just that it will support you and help you, and you need to advocate for yourself. But when a position opens up or an opportunity opens up. You need somebody who's going to go in there and, and, and push for you. And it's, it's unfortunate because sometimes it, it, as it, women, they, people don't think about you know, as this is the spot for you. You need somebody who's going to help you so then you can show what you can do when you're there. But if you can't even get in the role, if you can't even get that opportunity, you can't. You can't show what you can do. You guys, you are so sage. <laughs> this is probably my favorite panel. <laughs> a really long time. Really, thank you so much for all of your perspectives. You are wonderful. Keep fighting the good fight and find someone to mentor on that on that final note. So check us out at roomnow.com and our Twitter handle is at roomnow and stay tuned for more from Atlanta. Hi, my name is Eric Ruderman. Uh, we're here with Room Now at the ACR meeting in Atlanta. Uh, and we have a group of us here together to talk about psoriatic arthritis. Uh, before we begin, let's uh, give you a little of our background. As I said, I'm Eric Ruderman, I'm from Northwestern University in Chicago. Alexis Agdi, uh, rheumatologist, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Jesse Walsh, Salt Lake City. Jose Scher, NYU Langone Health, New York City, New York. Okay. So. The big news in psoriatic arthritis at this meeting has got to be the two phase three trials with Guzelcomab. And, and I want to talk about this a little bit, but I, I, I think it's really going to be helpful to talk about what's that going to say about that pathway for psoriatic disease. Um, Alexis, start us off by what did these trials show? Well, they're the first two phase three t- studies in the P19 inhibitors, so that's really exciting. Uh, there was one trial that was completely treatment naive. The other trial was uh, had some TNF non-responders or biologic non-responders in that uh, trial. So in the, the trial with uh, that was combined with biologic responders and treatment naive, a lot of them, um, there was th- two doses tested, a Q4 week and a Q8 week compared to placebo. And in that trial, the Q4 week looked numerically a little bit better than the Q8 week, but it wasn't that much different overall. Um, When they split it out by TNF uh, versus not TNF experience, they saw actually that the TNF experience people did equally well between either dose, which was a little interesting. Um, And then in the other trial, among all treatment-naive patients, the two doses looked identical. But the one caveat there was that the radiographic progression was statistically significant at the Q4 week dose, but not at the Q8 week dose. So some interesting things to kind of grapple with in terms of dosing and how we'll use that or what, what the FDA will think when that's submitted. And, and both, both show the drug work. Yes. Very absolutely. effective. Um, and, and I want to get into where that is going to fit for us. But before we go there, Jesse, the dermatologists are all in on IL-23 inhibitors. What, what, what's that about? Well, it makes sense. The, um, their outcomes look great. They're achieving... Um, Good skin clearance with, with the IL-23 inhibitors. Dosing-wise, they're somewhat easier to um, give. Patients like the less frequent dosing um, than with some of the TNF inhibitor alternatives. Um, and I think there are some hints that there may be some um, safety advantages, particularly compared to the IL-17 inhibitors, uh, where we don't have to think so much about candida or inflammatory bowel disease. And uh, I think the jury's still out on serious infection rates, but it may be a little bit more favorable with IL-23 inhibitors compared to IL-17s and TNFs. 
and, and before we talk about where these drugs are going to fit, the last thing I want to touch on, and Jose, tell me, so the dermatologists have successfully sort of upped the ante with each round of treatments from TNF to L17, L23, and it doesn't look like that we've achieved the same thing for the arthritis. What's that about? Biology. It's all about pathophysiology. We have nailed down the pathways for psoriasis. As you go upstream on the molecular pathway, you achieve better and better outcomes. We're jealous. They get PASI 100. <laughs> Since the year 2004, our metrics have not changed. It's ACR 20. Not only they haven't changed, the uh, eff efficacy of these drugs are about the same. You get a 55, 60% ACR 20 on the drug versus placebo. What do we do with that information? I think one of the progressive thinking, uh, thought approaches or thought processes is that we may be late when we uh, treat psoriatic arthritis patients. Perhaps later in the disease, later in the the disease process, not in the patient, in the disease process. Is there room to perhaps conceive preventive trials or very, very early psoriatic disease clinical trials? All right, so now we've got the data, we know what the skin is. I, I want to open this up. Where? So this is the first. Mm -hmm. um, two phase three trials that are clearly going to get this drug approved for psoriatic arthritis, and we have two more drugs waiting in the wings that are likely to follow. We have TNF inhibitors, we have IL-17 inhibitors, we have one and eventually more JAK inhibitors, we have, you know, a Premolast. Where are these IL-23 inhibitors going to fit in our patients? A great question. So, I mean, I think some of the easy things are that in, in practice, we're still going to use the drugs that we have first, most likely, and then this will be the next drug. So, most of our patients that we're going to prescribe Gisalcomab uh, for probably are going to be TNF experienced already because that's where it's going to come into the line. Um, I would probably use it in a patient with more severe skin disease. Probably avoid it in anybody who are concerned about axial disease. Yeah. What's that about? It didn't work. Um, the IL 23 data are not showing efficacy with um, with axial disease. We haven't really specifically been studied in axial uh, psoriatic disease, but in, in um, AS populations is just not working. And that probably again comes back to the biology. Maybe there's something different about the species. Yeah, a little bit more synovial involvement. In That's right. Joints. Look, uh, these are good drugs. The P19s, we're not talking about a lower effect class in terms of efficacy. we got to be uh, careful now. Now it's about the side effect profile. Now it's about dosing. Mm -hmm. Now it's about having a conversation with our patients, which we used to not have to do. We had methotrexate and nothing else. And then we had methotrexate plus minus a DNF which was an easy conversation. Right now, we open it up and we include the patients in the decision making. I think we also need more studies that are gonna help us differentiate this because right. right now we just have a bunch of trials in polyarticular patients. We don't actually know anything about how to target therapies. So there's a huge opportunity for this now moving okay. forward. I think you're specifically referring to patients who might not have, may have lower um, uh, purple joint burdens and, and more diverse phenotypes, is that right? Yeah, exactly. And Jess, you made an interesting comment. You were like, well, we use the drugs we're sort of used to using, and I think that's important. We're, we're creatures of habit. We yeah. get used to doing certain things, and the dermatologists 
have a compelling reason to use the IL-23 inhibitors because they're so much better for skin disease. I don't think we have that compelling reason, at least yet, in joint disease. Is that right? Right. I mean, it's nothing really in terms of joint outcomes that differentiates them well. Okay. All right. Let me shift gears for a minute, and let's talk about another trial that was that was presented here at the ACR meeting, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and it's a question that's come up in rheumatoid arthritis before. We haven't looked at it in psoriatic arthritis, and that is, if you got a patient who's doing really, really well, can you back off their medication? Um, so the ixekizumab study, which took all these patients, put them on ixekizumab. If they got into minimal disease activity, they were randomized to withdraw the ixekizumab and, and just stay on placebo or stay on the ixekizumab in a blinded fashion. What happened? So, yeah, most, almost all of them went back up onto therapy again. Uh, so once they withdrew, they, uh, they flared, and a median, I think it was about six months or something like that, they looked at over 40 weeks, there were significantly more flares than people who were pulled off the drug from, compared to people that were stayed on the drug. But the interesting thing is that once they restarted them on drug, you could recapture most of them, which was also interesting. I mean, the survival curves were fascinating. Basically said, if you went on placebo, and you waited long enough, you were gonna your disease was going to come back. Yeah. Okay. Um, should we should we not have expected that? I expected uh, we that. We expected that based on the rheumatoid experience with TNF blockers, right? We've seen this before, this behavior. What we haven't seen, and it's new, is this easy recapture, which may have to do with immunogenicity, where TNFs do create immunogenic responses. And the 17A class is not noticeable for that, so that may be an advantage. Although 70% of them were on methotrexate in the study, which is right. really interesting to me, so maybe that led to some baseline treatment that you could then made it easier to recapture some of them. I don't know. Interesting. So one last question, and I look at that study. I wish they had had an arm where they gave placebo every other dose, because in RA, at least, we've seen you can you can decrease the biologic, just you're, you're sort of nodding your head. I mean, that that's the question. You know, stopping the drug doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't it be nice if we were able to look at cutting and down? And patients want to do it that way. Yeah. They say, can I can I decrease my dose rather than come off it all at once? So I think it's it's logical and, and preferred by... To close the circle on that one, going back to P19s, this is a drug that's every two months. But if you leave people off of drug for six months, 50% of them will remain with good skin outcome. So you could argue that frequency is one thing we should look at in other uh, targets. So the message is anybody out there who is involved in trial design, we'd like to see not necessarily withdrawal trials, but maybe spacing trials spacing, to give yeah. us some of those yeah. answers. Exactly. All right, I think we'll wrap there. Thank you, everybody, for, you. for doing this. Um, again, uh, for Room Now, coming from ACR in Atlanta in 2019. Thanks for watching. Hi, I'm uh, Len Calabrese from the Cleveland Clinic, and I'm here on Room Now with two experts in immune related adverse events from cancer immunotherapy Laura Capelli from Johns Hopkins, Cassie Calabrese, who I actually know, from Cleveland Clinic. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Four or five years ago, you had, you had to look for, to find one or two presentations on this, and by one calculation, there are over 60 uh, abstracts that involved cancer and rheumatic disease at this meeting. So, 
highlights. Laura, give me a couple. So I think we had a really great oral abstract session yesterday, um, and there was some very interesting pharmacovigilance data that was presented from the group from the Sorbonne. Uh, so they looked at the World Health Organization database for IRAE, so immune-related adverse events secondary to immune checkpoint inhibitors, and they found about 600 reported cases of arthritis and about 400 of myositis. Um, but I think the real take-home message from that abstract was that in the patients with myositis, those who would have fatal cases typically developed um, the first symptoms about two weeks before those who would have not fatal cases, which I think is really thought-provoking about you know, the what the pathogenesis that's going on there. You know, do these people have already pre-existing? Pre oh, absolutely. Yeah. Great, uh, great uh, uh, presentation and uh, myositis, very serious and got to be picked up early. Cassie, give me one. Yeah, so many great abstracts. I think I've been told there's 60-some. I'm not sure if that's accurate, but also uh, yesterday at the oral session, something kind of new and different um, from Marie Costine uh, in Bordeaux looked at the effect of microbiome-altering medications um, on IRAEs, and what they did was a retrospective study, I think 600-some patients uh, looking at um, administration either within the month before or month after of a handful of different types of drugs um, including antibiotics, steroids, um, some psychotropic medications like statins, ACE inhibitors, and looked at the effect on overall survival and tumor response. And um, interestingly, um, something we've kind of suspected is that prednisone uh, equivalent dose of 10 milligrams or more um, daily at baseline had negative effects on overall survival and, and tumor response. Um, also interestingly, similar negative associations with antibiotics and proton pump inhibitors. That was another one. So I think take home point, um, if we can avoid baseline steroids at a dose of, you know, 10 milligrams or more daily is probably something we should be doing prior to starting immunotherapy. Yeah. That is a very provocative uh, study. You know, these immune diseases, uh, as Laura mentioned, you know, some may be pre-existing autoimmunity, some may be operating through novel mechanisms of uh, breaches of tolerance, and <clears throat> we have an incomplete understanding of both the genetics, which may our partial contributor, uh, and environmental factors, and you know the antibiotic story has been out for a long time. But geez, PPIs and these other drugs, and so are they common. operating? They yeah, are so commonly administered to people. So you know, I, uh, my my actual personal um, discussion with patients and 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 friends who have undergone this is to you know try to live as naturally as you can. You know, eat a healthy diet and do all the type of uh, uh, wellness behaviors you can before doing this and try to clean your system out. We are at the beginning of the beginning of this. I think that uh, one more abstract from Laura and we'll wrap this up. So I think we're going to go from big um, you know, database studies to small, and so uh, the Mayo group presented also at the oral abstract session some flow cytometry data looking at peripheral T cells in patients who developed new inflammatory arthritis from checkpoint inhibitors as compared to healthy controls, RA controls, and checkpoint inhibitor controls who didn't get arthritis. Bottom line is small number of patients needs more validation, but in intriguing that the immunosenescent phenotype seemed to be up 
and the exhausted T cells seem to be down in the checkpoint inhibitor patients in a similar way actually to the traditional rheumatoid arthritis patients. So I think that it was provocative, small number of patients, good pilot data for more study. I agree 100%. Uh, there's just a recent roundtable discussion, I think, in Nature Immunology, taking the world-leading experts on uh, exhausted T-cells, and there's really a lack of uniform definition of how to define these by advanced flow and metabolomics and transgenomics. So again, uh, I think it's a great start. Uh, it's telling us something, and hopefully we can build upon it with larger studies. Uh, I want to thank everybody for coming into room now. IRAEs are here to stay. They're only going to get bigger. And next year, we're shooting to maybe have our own uh, abstract category. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>